I'm Elton Barker, and you're listening to CC Shorts. My guest today is Dr. Jodie Cundy of the University of Toronto. I met up with Jodie while she is in Oxford, working on a book about wonder, place and space, and Pausanias' description of Greece. In this CC Shorts episode, we talk Pausanias, travel writing, and paradoxography, or the cataloguing of marvels, and in particular, how Pausanias represents Greece, from its most famous ruins to a simple rock on the ground, as a place of enchantment. So I'm with Jodie Cundy mm. um, from the University of Toronto, but currently studying in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit why you're studying in Oxford? What is it that you're doing here? So I suppose I should start by saying uh, how grateful I am to SHRC, which is the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. So get the plug in. That's no, I, well, also, it truly, 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 I am very grateful um, because they have postdoctoral fellowships and having uh, won one of these, it gives me the opportunity to do research and publish things that I've been thinking and writing about. Um, and not have to teach in the interim and come and work here uh, at Oxford with Yash Elsner, which is kind of a dream. And so, why are you working with Yash? What are you doing? Okay, so um, I wrote a thesis on Pausanias's Perigesis and uh, on wonder, space and place in, in the text. So really looking at the structures um, in the Perigesis and thinking about predominantly what is the unifying theme in this text, right? Which has been quite an elusive, uh, an elusive thing. Basically, some scholars have come around to say, oh, well, we think it's basically just his personal preference, uh, something very idiosyncratic, because there's all kinds of stuff in this text. Such as, give us an example. Oh, well, he is our primary witness for all kinds of architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is an eyewitness and participant in rituals. Um, so a very important witness for, for cult. Um, he gives us various historical narratives. So we learn a lot about Hellenistic kings from Pausanias. We learn a lot about the Messenians and, um, and helots from Pausanias. So you have those kinds of, of things peppered throughout the text. Um, but there are things that he would have seen on the ground um, in the second century AD, traveling around mainland Greece, that he just doesn't talk about. In fact, that he probably deliberately elides. So it's and not a simple travel guide in that sense. It's not a, a reportage, yeah. exactly. Although people often read the text that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly people have uh, argued that it's a travel guide, and even arguing over whether or not it's sensible to bring rolls on site with you to read Pausanias <laughs> while you're there. Um, but yeah, so he, he kind of carried this label of the ancient Baedeker for, mm-hmm. for quite a long time. Um, and uh, some scholars have, uh, like Yash Elsner in particular, had done a very good job of showing how, how this text is, is structured, is constructed in a very conscientious kind of way. Um, and, and structured in what way? Again, can you give us an example of how? Because so, it's a very, as you've already given an indication, there's a lot of stuff in this text. Actually, yeah. how is how is all that stuff put so, together? So uh, the the narrative frame is a, is topographically structured, mm-hmm. right? So the the main story, if we can call it a story, mm-hmm. although in terms of plot, not very exciting, right? But the main story is of uh, what looks like a pedestrian journey around mainland Greece. Um, 
And what he will do is describe monuments um, and, and other interesting topoi along this route, mixing in um, mythical narratives, historical narratives, other bits and facts, other analogous phenomena, as, as you're basically moving as a virtual traveler mm-hmm. around this route, this itinerary. So one of the things that Yash has argued is that this text, uh, or one of the ways of thinking about this text, is is as pilgrimage in in a very broad sense, um, and not so much necessarily that it has to be religious travel, but rather that it's travel that's motivated um, by the idea of Greek culture, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that he'd argued. Um, and then Bill Hutton's book on. Um, uh, like landscape and um, and literature in the Perigesis also does a very good job of then fleshing out some more the the kind of spatial aspects of the text and and how it relates to the broader literary landscape of of the second sophistic and that was very useful. So where are you coming into this? Yeah, so um, I I started actually reading this text because I went to Greece to the American school. Uh, having just read a whole bolus of um, classical texts of canon and feeling like, oh, I've read lots of Greek and lots of Latin. I know what I'm on about. And then people kept talking about this author, Pausanias. And I was like, I don't know anything about Pausanias. And so I started reading some Pausanias. And I was like, this text is really interesting. Mm. So this was the kind of lead in for me. And then through some of those texts I've talked about already, the secondary literature, uh, and essentially, I just wanted to know more about this text. And as I read, I was struck by how much um, wonder, how many weird little strange factoids there are in this text. Hmm. And, and wonder has a historiographic tradition going back to Herodotus. Absolutely. Well. And Herodotus is one of the main models mm. for Pausanias in his text. Um, but uh, in, in thinking about wonder, um, I thought, well, this suits very well the reading of the, the Perigesis as travel writing, which is what Maria Pretzler wrote her book on. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at what we have in terms of preserved travel writing, um, we tend to find that the marvels are... Um, exotic, right? Mm-hmm. They are yeah. things that happen yeah. at the edges of the world, out of these strange spaces. And you get all kinds of challenging of the authenticity of these marvels, right? And and so it becomes this issue, of how do you report them credibly or not, right? Mm-hmm. And Lucian can have great fun playing with mm-hmm. this stuff um, yeah. with his true story. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about the Perigesis is that it is so central, right? I mean, Greece... And let's say the Delphic Onflos is at the center of the world. So the wonders so, are taking place within Greek space, with, not on the not on the fringes or margins. They do both, right? So you do have exotic marvels in the text, but the way that you get them into the text, because obviously I've said this is yeah. a topographically structured narrative in Greece. Yeah. So they get into the Perigesis in in these little catalogs or analogies for. Uh, you know, either statues, buildings, or phenomena that that Pausanias talks about in Greece proper. So you end up with this actually really interesting 
um, from a narratological point of view, structuring of the texts where you get these kind of very huge leaps that will take you from uh, where you are at some point in the narrative in Greece all the way out to uh, to India and back or along the coast of Asia Minor and back or up to, you know, where the Celts live and back. Um, and so he's bringing these exotic marvels into the text. And this is something that had been noted, but not necessarily explained. Mm. Uh, wh what are they doing there? I mean, so what are they doing there? I think what they're doing there is, is actually to show that Greece is marvelous. So essentially it becomes a way of showing that the marvels within Greece are comparable to the ones that are at the edges of the world or um, edges of the Oikumene, and they are right there at the center. Um, so it becomes an argument for saying that Greece is an enchanted place, that mm -hmm. Greece is um, a wonderful place. The landscape and myth and the, the rituals there are, are worth not only worth seeing but worth participating in learning more about yeah and he so. even he says this explicitly yeah. right he will say you know greek writers will marvel at the at the pyramids in egypt and marvel at these other foreign things and, and then they say nothing about the walls of tyrants right, right. With, and these are no less marvelous right. right and he'll say you know that there are many wonderful things in, in greece to see and and hear about um, but, you know, heaven bestows more care on the Olympic Games and the Eleusinian Mysteries than anything else, right? And so we start getting this idea that what we think of as marvels doesn't quite correlate to what he thinks of as, as a thalma, which is mm -hmm. a Greek word for a marvel. Mm -hmm. um, and so that led me into investigating more how it is that we even construct our notion of the marvelous when we're talking about antiquity. Um, so one of the things that comes out in the literature on the marvelous uh, is that this is culturally specific, culturally determined. And I think we make a bit of an error when we <clears throat> take our modern notions of what a marvel is, right? And then look for that in an ancient text. Right, so can you give us an example of what you mean by this cultural conditioning regarding Marvelous. Well, uh, for us, it's very deter it's very much uh, inflected through through affect and through surprise, uh -huh. right? So, um, the there's a, a scholar named Fisher who writes about the aesthetics of of the marvelous, and and he just kind of follows Kant and says, okay, well, we have in terms of the aesthetic of rare experiences, we have the uh, we have wonder, which is you know, part of the aesthetics of pleasure and we have the sublime, which is part of the aesthetics of death and and thinking of these two things as separate. So mm -hmm. in, in the way that we speak and talk about the marvelous, it's got this kind of, you know, or, or wonder. We have this idea of like the, the pleasure of the unknown, a surprise that, that is going to make you feel good and curious and all of this kind of thing. Um, but I think when you look more closely at uh, ancient Greek texts and starting from Homer and, and moving on up, you don't have a separation between this, this kind of pleasurable aesthetic and the aesthetic of death. I mean, they are combined in Thaoma. And okay. like the prime example of that is the Shield of Achilles, right? Where Hephaestus, when he makes it, says this is going to be a Thaoma edistai, a marvel to behold, mm -hmm. right? And so it has that status, almost it's ontological status is as a marvel, regardless of how it's perceived. 
And then what you get when Thetis brings it to, to Achilles is that Achilles, with his semi-divine status, he can look at it and... And enjoy it. And enjoy it, exactly. Yeah. He's going to have this flash in his eye and be you know, yeah. filled with pleasure. But his men, the Myrmidons, who are mortal, they can't, yeah. right? It, it's a c- clashing cacophony for them, yeah. uh, overwhelming. And, and they look away in terror. So that, that object is going to be actually perceived very, very differently. I see. And so when we focus on affect for defining the marvelous in ancient texts, we're missing the point. Mm. Some of them have that status just by virtue of being made by a god. And then I would extend that to say many things that are made for gods also have that status. And can you think of an example that illustrates your point from Pausanias, one of the marvels he mentions? That illustrates the point of of the the terror or <laughs> the pleasure well the, the this uh, the fact that um, the modern notion of of wonder doesn't do it let's say uh i think so part of it is um hmm maybe the best uh, example that comes to mind for me is is actually related to the notion of epiphany mm-hmm so when Pausanias goes and visits um, the Oracle of Trophonius in Levadia, um, he gives a very long description of the rituals there that you have to do. And then, and then going down into uh, the Mantean proper. And, and then he, he explains how, you know, whoever is, has gone and consulted when they come back up, they have to tell the priests what they've seen and they've heard. And, and that they are like completely incapacitated. They are incapacitated with terror, he says, completely unaware of their surroundings. They're completely bouleversé, would be the mm-hmm. French word to say it. Um, and, and then they're eventually going to recover. And if you're focused on marvelous as pleasure, you're going to miss that this affect that he's describing there is the one of the characteristic responses to an encounter with the divine right? An epiphany, as Platt would say. Mm-hmm. And that that is the ultimate form of Thelma, right? So it's where we have, actually, we have difficulty trying to articulate our response, yeah. essentially. And, and so one of the things that I think happens as a result of that is that, one, if we're too focused on affect, right, um, then we miss the notion of, of marvels as a category, of mm-hmm. objects, right? Um, and and then, two, if we ignore the sublime, as we would think of it now, as part of the notion of Thalma, then oh, we miss opportunities for identifying Thalmata generally and their relationship with the divine. So I think one of the things that comes out of reading the Perigesis is a notion that Thalmata properly are the traces of the divine right i was going to ask that actually exactly okay. <laughs> yeah so they're the, the semita of the divine and i think that this is really important for understanding what what pausanias is selecting to talk about in the mm. periegesis right so one of the criticisms of uh of yash's framing of the the periegesis as as pilgrimage was that there's much that's secular in the text and so, you know, it can't really be pilgrimage if that's the case, even though he was making the argument about culture. Yeah. But I would go a bit further. I think a lot of what people think of is secular isn't secular right. in the text. Right. And 
Uh, or at least there's not a neat distinction between the two. No, but or or like that there are a lot of things that he would ascribe to divine agency that we just don't necessarily think of in that right. way. And that's maybe thing, where myth comes in too. And and so etiology is super important. Yeah. And myth is super important in this text. It's yeah. what gives meaning yeah. to a whole bunch of objects that we might think of as really mundane. Right. So my favorite example for talking about that is is this rock in Attica, right? It's just a rock. <laughs> just a rock. Uh, but it's not just a It's rock. not just a rock, <laughs> exactly. A small rock that's just the right size for a small man to sit on is Such what as. he says. Yeah, this is what he says. And then and then he goes on to explain that it, it's on this very rock that uh, that Silenus sat when he came to Attica with Dionysus, right? And so the rock itself becomes the kind of material emblem that that testifies to this mythal, mythical narrative that we think of, but really the presence and agency of the gods mm -hmm. in the landscape, mm -hmm. right? And so the it's narrative is what makes it special. And right. that, that's why a very plain looking rock will get described in the text. And I mean, even if you think about, uh, you think about the, the stone that was um, replacing Zeus and vomited back up again, when you look at it in, in Hesiod, right? He says that this rock is a thauma mm -hmm. because it is a sema mm -hmm. of the divine, mm -hmm. right? And Pausanias talks about this rock. He sees this rock when he's at Delphi and the way that people you know, pour oil on it and the kind of uh, rituals that they have around this rock. But at the same time, it really is just a rock, mm -hmm. right? Unless you have the narrative to go along right. with it. Unless you have the stories wrapped around it. And one thing that Pausanias' narrative is doing, of course, is preserving those stories and, and let's say, geolocating them in, in, in these very precise objects in space, such as what seems to be an ordinary looking rock. Exactly. And, and so when you think about them and, and their status, I think in, in, uh, in the, like, the language of Iliade, you would think of these as hierophanies, right? Mm. They are these objects that are imbued with a kind of sacred power by virtue of their association with the divine. Mm -hmm. And they keep that going mm -hmm. forward. And that seems to be the way that Pausanias engages with these objects. So one of the things about focusing on wonder in the text is that you end up bumping up against not just travel writing, um, as uh, as Pretzler has shown, but um, one of the other like premier genres for talking about the marvelous in antiquity, which is paradoxography. Right, there's a whole genre of text that is all about wonders. Right, um, and so these we we think of as like quite specifically texts that are uh, focused on wonders. That's a, a broader category than then in fact many scholars would narrow it down to say well it's not just that they're about wonders but also a function of how they are created so that they are necessarily derivative texts they're mm -hmm. product of much library work where you are uh, culling or exerting marvelous narratives or little anecdotes from other texts and then compiling them together right and so you get this kind of 
genre of technical writing focused on marvels. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that Callimachus is Cyrene, who we, we don't have his text, but we, we have uh, a notice saying that he wrote the, you know, the wonders of the world according to place, right? Uh, and, and we have parts of that text in Antigonus of, of Charistos's, um collection of marvels. And so this is the kind of text that we're talking about. Um, but people who study paradoxography have for the most part been very much focused on uh, on how there's interest in, in natural wonders in in these texts um, and and then focused on its relationship to um, ancient science and um, and peripatetics kind of more generally. And and so that has existed very separate from thinking about myth like mythography mm -hmm. um, and thinking about the divine, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when you start thinking about paradoxography and the perigesis, then that that kind of definition of a marvel as a natural marvel um, as part of scientific thought that is separate from thinking about the divine becomes um, very unstable in I fact see. breaks down mm -hmm. the other thing that is kind of complicating about thinking about the perigesis relative to paradoxography is this idea that it has to be a derivative that it has to be culled from earlier texts so there's a very funny uh, 19th century German scholar named Kochmann who who did read the Paragesis and say, this is a paradoxography. Very obviously, this is a paradoxography. But for him, that meant that all the autopsy claims in this text were derived from other people. Were spurious. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, because and, and you know, some of the, the marvels that are in the text do appear in other texts, yeah. like in Elian or whatever. And, and so for him, that meant that all the autopsy claims are spurious. Yeah. Um, and we know that that's not tenable. I mean, at this point, for, for Pausanias as an eyewitness, since Havoc, uh, we've, the, 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 the perception of this text has, has very much changed. And I don't think anybody would seriously doubt at this point that he traveled where he said he traveled or read what he said he read. Um, and so... Part of the problem is actually how we define paradoxography, right? The thing is, there are aspects of the paratactic arrangement of marvelous anecdotes that we get in these paradoxographical texts that are also present in the perigesis. So although the, the larger frame narrative is topographical, mm -hmm. what you find is that this is a text that like Herodotus has a lot of digressions, mm -hmm. right? And some of these digressions are narrative. Mm -hmm. um, you might get like a kind of myth history or whatever else, but some of them are actually catalogs. Mm -hmm. So paratactically arranged. And so they Catalog, have- Catalogs in space, as they were listing the objects. They're, they're like, I think as an analogy, you might think of like you're following a route and then, and then you can click on a button and get a menu. <laughs> uh, and, and, the, and that's kind of the way that they interrupt. They come out in list form, one after another, thematically related, but not, but not spatially related. Not spatially related. Okay. And, uh, and the things that bring them together, some of them are spatially related, but for the most part, they are um, they are, together, are an alternate way of organizing the text. Right, put together on, based on theme. 
Exactly. I see. Exactly. So that you can get things like um, a catalog of white animals, right? Oh, so he's at like, you know, Mussolini, and then he's like, I'll give you a catalog of white animals or of marvelous tombs, which will take you as far away as um, as Jerusalem. Like mm-hmm. he, he has these catalogs in there that are not constrained by the spatial um, reference of the the um, frame narrative. So they can bring in marvels from all over the Oikumene. Um, and so those tend to be within these catalog structures. So they are like many paradoxographies. Mm-hmm. And so they actually act as a tool to be able to play with the geographical scope of the text. And, that's... and, and place those objects within space in the broader context of the Oikumene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, and yeah. so they just, they, it's like they accordion the text instead of being then bound to um, to uh, mainland Greece or the, the province of Ikea, it can expand to the edges of the Oikumene and back again. And, um, and magnifying thus the, the, the marvel that you're looking at in the text. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, you know, some of these are, are really quite long um, and I think it's profitable to think about what is sometimes called the digression on Ionia in in this capacity, you know, because he begins that. So he's in book seven. He's in Ikea in um, um, mainland Greece, and then and then he jumps over to um, Ionia and and tells you, well, you know, the marvels, the wonders of Ionia are only a little bit less marvelous than Greece, and then gives a very long catalog of things that are worth seeing marvelous things temples mm-hmm. uh, springs etc all in ionia before then snapping back to being in in Nikia. so it's it's a part of the the function of the text and the way that it's structured uh, and those catalogs do two things they they um they let them play with with space but they're also a way of building credibility for the marvels that he's reporting through a kind of uh, analogous function, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So you see, you see one marvel, then, by the way, if you doubted that one, you should know that this similar phenomenon happens mm-hmm. actually in all these other places. Mm-hmm. So this is something that is possible and real, right? One marvel makes yet others more credible. And so, you know, he will say when when they sacrifice to the children of Oedipus, right, the smoke divides in two. And he's like, oh, wait, you should know. I've seen this same phenomenon when the Magoi are sacrificing, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. some other place. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have this kind of comparative analogous function that makes the, this, the marvels he's describing more credible on the ground. That's really fantastic <laughs> that, that's yeah that's very interesting yeah i can't wait to to hear more okay. i'm sure i was gonna say there's one more layer of this which is, is there yeah I, I guess we have a little bit of time come on let, let's hear the one okay, more. okay the one more layer of this is why bother to make a text like this in the second century ad okay that's so, that's that's a good question so yeah um you know if, if what he's doing is what I would call the re-enchantment of Greece, basically reminding people that uh, Greece is a marvelous place and Mm -hmm. it's a marvelous place because of the agency of the gods. And Mm -hmm. here are all the traces of what the gods do 
uh, have done mm-hmm. and will do mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, why is he writing it? Why does this need to be said? And so if you look at the kind of uh, uh, context of religious contestation in the second century AD, where you've got the spread of, uh, of cults through the Roman Empire, um, globalizing cults like the cult of Isis moving through, um, Mithras moving through. You have all of and these... Christianity as well. And emerging. Christianity, although he ignores Christians, mm. right? That doesn't mean he's unaware of them, there. but he ignores yeah. them. But yes, and more particularly the imperial cult. So mm. Pausanias of all the writers in that period is the most hostile to the imperial cult outside of maybe some of the Christian apologists. I mean, mm. he's really hostile towards it. Um, and uh, I think what he's doing there is actually um, arguing against not Roman imperialism as, you know, uh, political hegemony, but the religious aspect of Roman imperialism. So that these cults that are globalizing end up actually having a break with the landscape and right. with the numinosity of the landscape. And for him, the sacred is very much tied to place. And so you can't spread the way that they are. It's interesting. And that, that, that I would suggest is a theme running throughout um, Greek ritual mm-hmm. and at least um, mythical representations of Greek ritual. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's very much located in the landscape in specific places. Exactly. That's what in many ways differentiates, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, Greek ritual from... These emerging, you go globalizing. Yeah, and things. and Roman ritual. I mean, because yeah. they, you know, with evocatio and yeah. you know, in Roman religion, you can call the gods to yeah. you. You can move them. Yeah. And uh, and I think in Pausanias's uh, understanding of the divine, you can't. And uh, so I think this text is about trying to remind Romans how humans and gods interact in the proper way. Thank you, Jodie. That was such a broad, wide-ranging discussion about Pausanias and and really helpful for me because, you know, I'm now working on Pausanias myself. This is a great, uh, I was going to say refresher, but since I didn't know much about Pausanias in the first place, (laughs) a really good crib for me to, I'm sure, to use and to fully explore further. Um, It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to CC Short with me, Elton Barker, talking to Jodie Cundy about wonders in Pausanias. In the next episode, you can find out what first attracted Jodie to classical studies and what books have inspired her thinking. If you've liked this, please do subscribe to us, Classics Confidential, where you can find more short interviews and longer-themed episodes. Or else, check us out at classicsconfidential.co.uk. Until the next time, this is Elton signing out. Thanks for listening.